house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Bobby Riggs, I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy leg feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman. Don't hang up. And by the way, I shave my legs. Billie Jean King, already a champion of women's rights, is now the most successful female player of all time. I am not saying that women don't belong on the court. Who would pick up the balls otherwise? Oh my God. There's not a single thing I don't hate about Bobby Riggs. You know what I'm doing? I'm cooking. I'm cooking! I won the triple in Wimbledon. I could beat Billie Jean King. Does she have the nerve? Call Bobby. Tell him it's on. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's going to be angry until we die, unless Jessica Lang's narration says otherwise. Uh, every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my rival, sponsored by Sugar Daddy, Joe Reed. It really was a big sugar daddy in that movie. I was, I was transfixed by it. I couldn't quite wrap my head around the idea of a uh, a sugary sweet quite that big. Um, Listen, I, wanted I have to... never had a sugar daddy code. I don't need a sugar daddy code. <laughs> if I wanted to, yes, I could go out and get one because I am what? Highly sponsorable. <laughs> This I had did Oscar wanna... Buzz podcast sponsored by Sugar oh, Daddy. Sponsor us, cowards! Like seriously, sponsor us, candy companies. Seriously, we will go all the fuck out. Um, you can sponsor I... us and have the benefit of us not being chauvinist pigs. Exactly, uh, listeners. I want to mention. You'll note the uh, conspicuous lack of squeaking behind my audio. Uh, now I have swapped out my big, comfortable but loud desk chair for the moment for a small uncomfortable yet con- like strictly silent uh, chair so i know i know the last several weeks if you were listening and you were plagued by the squeak 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 of whatever was happening while i was talking that was my chair um and the sacrifices i make for you will be felt in the uh deep recesses of my tailbone but you know what uh, i'm here for you so there we go I am still sitting on my teeny tiny uh, little stool because I am in what yeah, what tiny closet. Chris, um, Chris, podcast. You guys need to picture when Chris is talking. Chris podcasting from like not Narnia, but like the little like the 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 causeway between the real world and Narnia. Where like it's Chris also will literally just painted black. Crawls into his little closet to like really, you know. Block out all external audio, and every once in a while, we'll get on something that has video, and I'll be reminded that, like... I'm in a tiny dungeon of my own making. I am in the chokey. <laughs> yeah, and just, like, surrounded by just, like, just like clothes on top of you and whatever, and it's just, like, it's very funny. And right yes. now, I am... <laughs> not to give you guys all the full sensory experience of my podcasting uh, environment, but right now, someone has... 
set something on fire in the backyard or something like that. I'm smelling some sort of thing. So hopefully if my like building a roast, is roast, is it like a like a roast pig or something or is it like because it's we're recording this on the 4th of July. Is right. it some type of barbecue product or is it It feels know... like the beginnings of a charcoal grill situation, I feel like perhaps. But mm. uh if at some point I have to run out of uh, my room because my building is on fire, you'll know uh remember me as I once was um angry at John Ham apparently. Um Hey, should Chris. you find yourself engulfed in flames? Yes. Um luckily we are sponsored by Sugar Daddy to um Yeah. Interesting. The medical costs. Interesting quirk of us podcasting about Battle of the Sexes today. Today is the uh, middle Sunday at Wimbledon, uh, which is the traditional day where there is no tennis actually played in the middle of Wimbledon because England is is you know odd and full of traditions, and the the Sunday that falls in the middle of Wimbledon is traditionally a day off for everybody there, and then everybody comes back and uh, plays on Monday. So. Um, yeah, we're in the middle of, uh, of one of my favorite tennis, you know, moments of the year. I, I've talked about, I've talked about You my, are like, famously one of my, uh, tennis friends. I am a big tennis person. I grew up watching tennis, uh, famously. My grandparents lived in the flat above us growing up, and my grandma and I especially would, I would be, you know, a little, you know kid and i would go up and she would make me a tuna fish sandwich and we would sit and we would watch the tennis and i sort of grew up loving it i'm not i'm old but i'm not old enough to have remembered watching billy jean king when i was a kid but obviously if you watch tennis in any capacity you are very much aware of Billie Jean King and her legacy, the uh, United States National Tennis Center in Flushing, uh, where the U.S. Open is held, is named after her. Like, she is uh, not, obviously, like, the greats in the sport from her era. She was sort of eclipsed shortly thereafter by Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. But, like, Billie Jean King looms so large in part because of the events that we see in Battle of the Sexes and the, and how sort of forthright she was in fighting for uh, equality for the women in the, in the uh, tennis world, equality of pay, equality of prominence, that kind of a thing. And so, obviously, the story in this movie was, like, very, very uh, popular and well-known. So... I was very much looking forward to talking about this movie because I also really like it. Oh, I was going to say, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this because like, I have kind of complicated feelings with the movie and that sure. like, I kind of feel like a stick in the mud about some of the stuff about it. Uh-huh. Um, also, I'm sure we'll get into various Alan Cumming monologues that basically close the movie that are uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, cringy to me. On um, the nose, a little on the nose, yes. God, God bless Alan Cumming for delivering it as uh, gracefully as possible. Um, Alan Cummings' sort of posh accent in this film gives me life whenever I do hear it. It's uh, it's very enjoyable to me. But yes, I, I know what you're... I know of what you We would die for Alan Cumming. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Joe, I don't know if you know this, but in 30 years from now, gay people will get married. <laughs> and Just we so call... Know. And we called that... Now, today, we call them homosexuals. Yes. Um... <laughs> Yeah. It's a it's a moment. It's a, it's one of those things where 
Simon Beaufoy, who is the writer of this, who uh, Oscar-winning screenwriter of Slumdog Millionaire, it really does feel like he didn't trust that the audience would get all the stuff in the actual story about Billie Jean's uh, gay relationship and her struggles with being closeted and yada, yada, yada. And they felt like they had to like throw that button on it at the end just so we'd be like, oh, okay. And it's just like, no, no, no. Like we were watching we the know. movie. We know. We got it. We've, we've been around the past. We decade. got, we get it, girl. Chad, like yeah. <laughs> we were all Chad Michaels in that moment. We got it, girl. We got it, girl. We got it. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so we've had this one. Uh, sort of hanging out in the in the spreadsheet that we have for possible new movies. Obviously, this is one of the more recent movies that we've done. This is only a 2017 movie, so there isn't a ton of hindsight behind it. And when we were planning this episode, too, I was like, I don't know. We've done some recent episodes, and Battle of the Sexes is brand new. And I had one of those post-COVID, even though we're still in COVID yeah, things, right. of, I was like, this movie just came out. And you were like, 2017 was four years ago now. Yeah. Four and years I ago. was silent for a good 90 seconds. Yeah, yeah. It really has, uh, time really has uh, continued to march on by. Yeah, right. So Even for these people's careers, because we're going to talk about Emma Stone, obviously, a lot. And I think at this t- at this point, it felt like this performance was, to some people, and I would include myself in that, Emma Stone's best performance. And then... To some people, myself included, would say the favorite comes right on. after this, yeah. she goes and does her best performance again in the favorite. And those were her only three performances in those it was like it was La La Land, her next movie was Battle of the Sexes, her next movie was the favorite. Like she doesn't she I mean, and maybe this is, you know, a thing that will change up, obviously, in her career, but like maybe not. She just doesn't do she doesn't work in volume in that way. Uh and so, like, she picks her projects seemingly very carefully, and that's, like, I I kind of defy anybody to, like, do a three-picture run as good as that. Like, very few people can do that, you know what I mean? Like, three consecutive movies where she shows up as strong as she does in La La Land, and then Battle of the Sexes, and then The Favorite. Like, I'm a little mixed I'm, on her performance on La La Land, but I'm going to concur with you. I mean, I will concede mixed, my issues mixed with... as your opinions may be. She still did win an Academy Award for it. You know she, what I mean? Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. That's why I say that. Um, so and 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 she has absolutely used the springboard of that Academy Award to do interesting things. Although, interestingly, in the uh, as I was reading up on the the production history of Battle of the Sexes, learned that she had signed on to the favorite well before she had won the Academy Award for La La Land, and in mm-hmm. fact. Um, she almost had to pull out of Battle of the Sexes because the scheduling for The Favorite was going to interfere with this. The Favorite was originally supposed to film in spring of 2016, and uh, so was Battle of the Sexes. And so Battle of the Sexes was almost going to have to turn to Brie Larson, who at that point was just... Like, Room was just getting in front of um, festival audiences. Like, she hadn't won the Oscar yet either. So, but she was going to perhaps replace Emma Stone in the Billie Jean King role. And then The Favorite, uh, filming on The Favorite got pushed back by a year. And Lanthimos did Killing of a Sacred Deer in the meantime. And so Emma then was able to do Battle of the Sexes 
and poor Brie Larson got shunted to the glass castle. And like the, the, which was originally Jennifer Lawrence's movie. Oh, that I didn't realize. Oh, that's yes. very funny. But I, she, again, I believe actually brought that movie to Dustin Cretton. I wonder if I, I probably doesn't change anything. I think the glass castles, you know, Failure to make an impact is not something I would lay on Brie Larson's shoulders, but like, but Jennifer Lawrence was a much more, there was, there's much more light on her and a much more sort of broadly notable and popular actress. So I wonder if maybe that film just gets more attention because it's a Jennifer Lawrence movie. Right. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of the thing about the glass castle, not only like I've still never seen it, so I can't pass creative judgment on it, but just nobody saw it. You know what I mean? I think it that was, was released the biggest at, problems. like really the wrong time for that movie. The movie is just fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know we, me, we'll I'm obsessed with these sort of that, like so we don't have to go into that movie. Exactly, I'm obsessed with these roads not taken. Yeah, I feel like now the that like more effect. more than a year has passed since the Naomi Watts miniseries, so we can do probably we can probably creep into another Naomi Watts movie at some point soon, um, which will be good. But. Um, yeah, so, like, you know me, I'm very much obsessed with these, like, roads not taken, and the idea that, like, um, that Battle of the Sexes and The Favorite and The Glass Castle are all sort of, like, intertwined uh, histories is <laughs> is very fascinating to me. Um, I also learned, speaking of movies that are not the movie we're talking about right now, but uh, that Kate Winslet was originally cast in the Rachel Weisz role. Or not, if not cast, then initially, like, they wanted Approached, Kate Winslet yeah. for, uh, for that role in The Favorite, which... Would have been great for Kate Winslet, and I don't, and I think like she would have done quite a good job. I wouldn't trade Rachel Weisz's performance for anything in that movie. Absolutely I not. I mean, perfect. Kate Winslet would have been wonderful, but like, uh, I think there's a layer of uh, not cruelty, but a bitingness that I don't know if Kate Winslet would have quite had in the way that Rachel yeah. Weisz has. And in a post-mayor environment, like Kate's doing fine, so I don't have to feel bad that Kate missed out on a great role, but um. But yeah, again, like just, you know, fascinating to see. But also the fact that like Emma Stone, because Emma Stone really fought for that favorite uh, role. Like she mm-hmm. she really, really wanted it. And, and that movie um, was developed for a long time. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we're going to be talking about Emma Stone quite a bit. It is shockingly only our second Emma Stone movie that we've ever done on this podcast after uh, another Emma Stone, Steve Carell joint. They are the uh, Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas of, uh, uh, I don't know, something. <laughs> you know, um, they tend to be in movies together. Uh, and uh, uh, It's also Steve love. Carell uh, reunion with the directing team. Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton also did Little Miss Sunshine. At least in this movie, Emma Stone and Steve Carell get to share scenes together, where in Crazy Stupid Love, they played father and daughter, only you don't know it until the very end, and they get, like, one very brief and sort of tangential scene together. And uh, this one, at least, they get a few moments of, uh, you know, verbal sparring, and um, obviously the tennis match, although, of course, there are, you know, uh, body doubles uh, for them playing tennis. I want to talk about the final tennis match scene. Do you not care for it? I, 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 it's a major problem of the movie for me. 
Oh, that's in- see. Okay, I think this is going to be one of those things where the fact that I come at it from such a tennis fan's perspective colors my judgment of it. Because for me, I'm just like it looks such like a real tennis match. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, and I'm just like, I'm just very impressed by that. And because it, obviously, they have actual tennis uh, players uh, playing those scenes, and I think it still presents a huge narrative problem the way that it's shot. Because you don't get to see, there's no close-ups, there's no whatever, it's shot like it's just a sporting event? I mean, it's maybe a more, like, basic expectation for what that scene to be. And, like, I think what it gives us is the emotional payoff of Billie Jean's experience after the match is over, after she's already won. Sure. But at no point in the game are we ever really put in her position, her point of view, what her experience was. And I think it's incredibly limiting to the audience. And it's very strange that that's not the case for Bobby, that we kind of get to experience it as Bobby gets to experience the match. And, like, my understanding of this match is that, like, she beat the shit out of him. She did. So it's like, how do you create right tension, tension. Right. in this match and it's right. like i guess you're creating it for everyone watching it and everything but i still think it's the wrong point of the movie to like not to like keep the audience at an arm's length from billy jean i don't understand it it really I get kind that. Of deflates a lot of the movie for me I think this movie's commitment to ver- ver- uh, verisimilitude, that's how we pronounce that? I'm sounding like a stupid sure. person right now. Um, Why not? Uh, <laughs> shut up. Um, is a strength of it, but also in a moment like that maybe does sort of get in its own way a little bit, where it does present a that tennis scene very, very realistically. It doesn't look fake. It doesn't look like ginned up for a movie. You also get things like the real Howard Cosell commentary track that is, mm-hmm. you know, spliced in with Natalie Morales as Rosie Cassells. And um, and I think that's actually done really well. And it's interesting. And again, the actual, you know, the context of the kinds of things that Cosell is saying, the sort of like really sexist things, the way he keeps sticking up for Jack Kramer and Bobby Riggs and, and things like... Um, and again, the fact that it is a blowout, she beat him in three straight sets, which if you, you know, know tennis, women, the women's tour in grand slams and major events, they play best of three sets. Uh, so first to two sets wins. And in the men's, it's best of five. So she be- beat him in a men's best of five scoring format, which he beat in the previous match with Margaret Court. He just beat her in best of three. So like this was a, a, you know, dominating performance by any standard. And so, again, like you said, trying to wring tension out of that, you would have to sort of fake that a little bit. But I do take your point in that we sort of, we leave Billie Jean's perspective once she gets on that court, and we don't re-enter it until, you know, she's she's already won. And, and I think it just flattens a lot of her, like, narrative arc and like the emotional impact of everything on both sides of it right it makes the final like queer moments way more cheesy than they are and it makes like the stuff leading up to it like not as tense i guess because like the other thing of it though is is to me is if you're watching this movie and if you're aware of this at all you know who won you know what I mean? We're only making a movie right. about this because she won. You know what I mean? We're not going to be making a movie about this if Bobby Riggs had won this match. So, like, 
the the outcome of the of the match isn't in doubt. And so I guess I do understand why um that would be then a challenge for the directors. And I guess again as me as somebody who really appreciates I think a lot of times when you see sports in film, I think the the dedication to things like, you know, finding ways to pull in close-ups and finding ways to sort of like get into, you know, the sporting event or whatever, oftentimes to me comes at the expense of, well, now it's just like, well, now I know I'm watching a movie. You know what I mean? Now I know I'm like, I've sort of been taken out of it a little bit because that's not how sports looks. That's not how, you know, these things Sure. Go and they also and, had the added difficulty because if you read interviews with Emma Stone, she was very upfront with uh, being ultimately a terrible tennis player. Right. So right. they could have made that. Could, they could have been limited in that way and how they shot it too. Which, oh yeah, like, I mean they definitely no used. Hers, you know, right? She gave def- an amazing performance. They definitely used uh, uh, body doubles for them. The body double for uh, for Steve Carell was a uh, former American tennis player named Vince Badia, who I like totally remember from the, from like 1990s and early two thousands, um, sort of a middling American uh, player. When, when I say middling, I mean only like in the top 50 in the world, like only one of the top 50 tennis players in the world. You know what I mean? Like that. Um, But this, uh, that sort of brings up another thing and we'll get into this on the, on the other side of the, plot description we promise we will describe the plot of this but um it's sort of this one of the things i thought of while watching this movie was at the elite levels of tennis and this is the thing a lot of things about tennis and the way that the game is played sort of the actual mechanics of the way the game is played is very different then and now and you can really see that in that match and like the style of tennis is a lot less or was a lot less power-based and and things like that. Like tennis, watching a tennis match like that versus watching a tennis match today is like, it's night and day. But one of the things that has remained constant is the fact that because tennis is an individual sport and because the, you know, being number one, like what it takes to be number one, it really, really impressed to me the fact that like she had to win every single time. You know what I mean? It's not like, Mm -hmm. you know, you have a baseball season and you can lose you know, 30 games in, in, in a season and still be, you know, one of the best teams in the league or whatever. And in tennis, like, even the fact of just, like, just dropping to the, to the point where just, like, just dropping your serve once could be catastrophic to you. Not to mention losing a set, not to mention losing a match. And there was this one point where, like, Billie Jean's, like, really, really at a low point where she, like, she loses in the third round of a tournament. And it's just like, oh, okay, like, you cannot... She couldn't afford to lose anything. She loses one match to Margaret Court, and she loses the number one designation uh, in tennis, and that's how Margaret Court ends up in her match against Bobby Riggs, which we'll talk about Margaret Court because I have some. I have some thoughts. Um, but I love that the movie villainizes her. Well, she's a villain. Like she, like to, uh, that's she another is one. A like, noted villain. If you have any she's awareness, she's the Anita at all of Bryant tennis, of tennis, and she's still doing it, and she's still yep. yeah. Anyway, um, but anyway, just the idea that like Billie Jean had to, she had no other recourse but to just like to win and to win all the time, and the pressure that it puts on her. And I think Emma Stone does a really good job with, um you know, portraying that pressure that is on Billie Jean's shoulders from all sort of all sides. But anyway, 
we'll get into it. We'll have a lot to talk about. Should yeah. we move on to the uh, 60 second plot description? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. All right, so let's get into it since we're already into the movie and we have lots of things to talk about. We are here to talk about Battle of the Sexes, directed by Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton, written by Simon Beaufoy, starring the one and only Emma Stone, Steve Carell, Sarah Silverman, Bill Pullman, Andrea Riseborough, Alan Cumming, Elizabeth Shue, Austin Stoll, Natalie Morales, Lewis Pullman, we will get into that, and uh, Fred Armisen. Movie premiered. I totally at, forgot, by the way, that Fred Armisen is in this movie. And when he shows up, I like it. Is I absolutely fell out. conceivable that Fred Armisen is in <laughs> any movie like this, as like Bobby Riggs's nutrition, like nutrition shaman, like protein guru, like yeah, yeah. yeah. Hop, hopping just, him up on just pills and vitamins. feeding him amino acids left and right, just yeah. crazy, yeah. Yeah, but the movie uh, premiered at Telluride, then TIFF before opening limited in uh, late September and going wide the very next week. Joe. Yes. Are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of The Battle of the Sexes? Yeah, I am, in fact. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you have a somewhat easy task ahead of you, but your 60-second plot description of Battle of the Sexes starts now. All right, so Emma Stone plays Billie Jean King, who is the top women's tennis player in the United States. But uh, the United States tennis establishment, and particularly former uh, top player Jack Kramer, refuses to pay the women as equally as the men, based on a lot of uh, sort of bullshit uh, justification about how women uh, don't play well under pressure and are not as athletic as the men and the men have to support their families and it's all bullshit. So Billie Jean and a handful of the other top women players break off and start their own tour sponsored by 30 the, uh, glamorous Virginia Slims. The women have to fight and scrap for every dollar which makes it particularly galling when retired player and gambling addict Bobby Riggs starts making noise about a battle of the sexist tennis showdown between him and Billie Jean. She refuses sensibly but then when Margaret Court, a uh, crusty homophobe that she is, does agree to play for Bobby, uh, play against Bobby and she gets creamed by him, Billie Jean Jean agrees to the match to shut Bobby up and make a statement for women's tennis. All the while, Billie Jean is in a relationship with Marilyn, her hairdresser, while still being deeply closeted and married. The pressures from her personal professional life build up, and eventually there is the match, and she defeats Bobby in straight sets, striking a blow for women's equality and carving a place for herself. And then gay people got married 40 years later. Indeed. Indeed. As uh, As did Billie Jean. Although not to Marilyn, and we'll talk about that that's a whole thing okay question because i know because you brought it up several times in the past the the tv movie yes where holly hunter plays billy jean king directed yes. by jane anderson director of prize winner of defiance ohio go back Indeed. and listen to that episode absolutely um is the Marilyn character or or an analog to Marilyn in that movie so funny story i never watched that movie <laughs> it was a TV movie, and I can't remember whether it was like, and it was one a of those TV things where it's like that exists only as production stills. Well, and okay, it wasn't even I like an HBO TV movie. It was an AB. It aired on ABC. So, like, if you missed it that night, you missed it. It was, in, you know, it aired. Right. It, it was in two thousand one. So it's not like I could like stream it afterwards. So I didn't watch it. I will say, Stalker Channing is the narrator of that. So I kind of do want to seek it out at some point. Every movie should be narrated by Stalker Channing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yes, so I'm not sure, although I'm looking at the cast list for that, and there's no character uh, by That's why I asked. I was like, did they fictionalize the character or completely write her out? Because the whole lawsuit portion of it Mm -hmm. happened in the 80s. Right, so uh, uh, Marilyn 
what is her last name? Barnett. Real person. Um, hairdresser also, though, uh, in real life, I think, like, personal assistant to Billie Jean King. Like, lived in the King's home. Um, and in the early 1980s, filed a palimony suit. One of the earliest, I think, same-sex palimony suits. Um Against uh, against Billie Jean for you know all this money and effectively outing her, effectively outing Billie Jean, which was something that she really struggled with. You see, you see a lot of this in the movie, where a lot of the the fact that she remained closeted was not only because of uh, her relationship with her parents, and she was terrified of essentially being like cut out of her parents' lives, uh, something that a lot of people, uh, gay people, can certainly relate to, but also the fact that. She would lose millions of dollars in sponsorships, and it could like threaten. Which she did. It could, which she did uh, in real life. But it also, at the time, especially in the seventies, when the the women's tour was so new that it could conceivably like completely deep deep six the entire women's tour. So much of the success of the early years of the WTA was on. Billie Jean's shoulders because she was the most prominent and the most sort of vocally active player uh, in that movement. So there was a lot going on. So the palimony suit happens. It sort of goes on for years. It effectively outs Billie Jean. It's, you know, uh, I one would imagine quite acrimonious. Billie Jean and Larry King remained, not that Larry King, obviously, uh, remained Could married. Could you imagine? <laughs> Could not. Uh, remained married throughout that entire thing. They eventually... Um, got divorced when she got together with her uh, current wife, her uh, doubles partner at the time, which is quite a story that I would almost like to see fictionalized in and of itself. Um, Alana Kloss is her name. So one of the things I've always talked about is that like a great idea for a TV series, whether on like HBO or Netflix or whatever, it would be a, a TV series about the behind the scenes goings on uh, on on a tennis tour. You know what I mean? Whether it's like the uh, modern day or even say like, a show about gay marrieds, but they are doubles a partners. lesbian and a gay man. <laughs> oh, even though Larry King was not a gay man, but right. I would watch that show. Yeah, no, I just feel like uh, a a TV series about like the ongoing sort of interpersonal dramas around professional tennis players is I it's prime material because the thing about tennis and the thing about any kind of sport that is not a team sport is that it really allows for um personality quirks let's say to really come through and shine to the forefront obviously like there's so many things like players can just be incredibly temperamental and tempestuous and tennis especially these kids are like brought up in the sport from an incredibly young age so they're all like very like stunted emotionally and they're all incredibly like they are um sort of business interests unto themselves. So there's just, like, there's so much to consider in there. I think you could get, like, a ton of drama. And obviously, like, they're dating each other, and a lot of them don't like each other. And there's, you know, many things beyond just simply what goes on on the court that goes in there. So anyway, free idea for anybody. Make a, tennis, a TV series about uh, uh, professional tennis. Anyway, um, yeah, Billie Jean King's personal life is incredibly interesting. And... Uh, in the promotion of Battle of the Sexes, they really kind of soft-pedaled the whole idea of just like, oh, right, this thing with Marilyn ended very, very, very acrimoniously. Yeah, and it's partly because, like, the movie 
one of the best attributes of the movie is this kind of love story, this flirtation. Like those scenes are between Emma Stone and Andrea Riseborough are it, fantastic. And like to the point where the first scene where they meet, they used ASMR techniques <laughs> for like their connection. Yeah. Um, in terms of like the filmmaking of it. Um, yeah, it's very so it's like it, it, it's probably shocking to anybody who doesn't know the like how their relationship ended if you just watch this movie you know because i don't think it's uh presenting it as some great love but it is kind of this awakening for billy King. whether or not it's true in the in the movie she said she'd never been with a woman uh, before her um and like all of those things are handled incredibly well and very yeah. like tenderly and yeah. some of Emma Stone's best stuff in her performance. Um, yeah. I do kind of like the maturity though of a movie that's just like, look, like this was a relationship that was very important to Billie Jean at this point in her life. And right. we don't really need to like hold the audience's hand and be like, look, this relationship didn't work out. Like we can all be adults and read a postscript and just be like, oh, right. Like not every relationship that's your first relationship with somebody uh, uh, of, uh, you know, of the same sex uh, can- works out in that way it's not a storybook it's not a fairy tale and yeah it's presenting this moment in time yes um and see this is one of my things that i have this issue that we break from billy because like i feel because that connection between the audience and the protagonist is broken it feels like it breaks this like snapshot of Yes. What her experience was breaking from the league she was within, starting her own outfit, basically, yeah. and then winning this major title and becoming a sports hero to the entire country. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah. I get why this movie follows Bobby Riggs's character as much as it, as it does. For one thing, he's an incredibly um, quirky, kooky like character beyond the fact that like the the story of the legend that has sort of built up around this match the battle of the sexes match um obviously and rightly paints bobby riggs as the villain and billy jean the conquering hero and i like i do like that this movie um really gets into what a sort of purposeful buffoon uh, bobby is and that a lot of what his character uh, a lot of the antics that his character got up with got up to was part of the idea he was uh, like a professional wrestler almost right like mm-hmm. playing the part of the heel to build up um interest in this match and ultimately it was the only way he was going to be able to finance his gambling addiction do you know what i mean was to right. do ultimately these stunts. build up interest in him so that he right. can reap financial gain out of it but one of the the very interesting maybe to him in his perspective he's building up a persona that it doesn't matter if he wins or loses because he's you know becoming a personality and will right work from that but what you do see in that match and i think that's something that you sort of talked about and that like we do get more of bobby's uh persona in that match and perspective in that match is that losing that match does take its toll on him that he really you know it struck a blow to his ego for as much as he was playing the part and playing you know a role that he also really did want to believe that he still had it enough to beat 
the top women's players. And mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. I don't know if I necessarily need the stuff with him and his wife, much as I love Elizabeth Shue. I don't know if we necessarily need the stuff with him and his son, much as you love Lewis Pullman. Um, but, uh, and I also feel like, and again, this goes back to my desire for a television series about, uh, tennis. <laughs> about tennis. I would have loved a lot more with the WTA women, with the, the Virginia Slim story. Oh yeah. I that, love like group dynamic. I like, adore. All the scenes of them together are so like cool and fun and you want to get more time with them to get like the personality dynamics and great actresses obviously natalie morales as uh as rosie casales but like mickey sumner's there and bridey elliott's there and obviously like sarah silverman is so much fun in this movie every single time she has anything to say about cigarettes or about like photo shoots or about <laughs> sarah whatever silverman monologuing about cigarettes also sarah silverman in that wig with this outfit with the like a cigarette is the natural extension of that yeah. character's body right well she's just sarah silverman is perfect in this movie and i really wish that there was more of her you really only get her in the first like third of the movie yeah um because like to me that would be the type of character actress thing and we've had this from sarah silverman before most notably in um take this waltz where it's like sarah silverman could be an acting nominee someday well, the thing about the thing that I wanted to sort of mention, though, about something like Take This Waltz, and you know, I love that movie, and I love her performance you know in that I love movie. It too. I would have nominated her for an Oscar uh, for that movie. But I think it's interesting that in the films where her acting has sort of gotten uh, good press or good praise, has been things like Take This Waltz or the uh, the surprise SAG nomination she got for. Is it I Smile Anyway? Is that what that movie is called? Uh, I smile back. I smile. Is that what it is? I smile forward. I smile back. It's I smile back. Yeah. I smile to the left. I don't know why I said I smile. Yes, I smile back. Smile backwards, forwards. My God. Are we doing the Tootsie Roll now? Is that what's happening? I don't know. I smile to the left. To the left. I smile to the right. To the right. Okay. Anyway, um, but um, my left or your left. What I was saying is that she sort of has gotten praise for these movies that play against her comedic sort of instincts, right? It's just like, oh, she can do such great work as a dramatic actress. And what I love about her performance in Battle of the Sexes, it's just like, this is a drama, but she is a comedic character within it. And everything that she does is, you know, she's not like, you know, hamming it up or anything like that but just well she and even great the, like stuff with the cigarettes and getting the cigarette sponsorship like uh, so it could funny. become a bit to where it's like you get some cutaway of her chain smoking at the final match but it's not that but it is a funny bit the yeah. other thing about virginia slims as a as a entity is it's one of those great um shorthands for like products of a different era like the idea just the idea of virginia slim cigarette just the idea of these sort of like these long thin cigarettes that were marketed to women who liked being associated with things that were long and thin you know what i mean it's just like just like like a cigarette that the original skinny girl margarita essentially yes exactly but so it's one of those things where it's just like it's so indicative of the 70s it's very much like um how my mom still calls margarine oleo every once in a while and it's just like oh that is very 70s that is very like (laughs) old school um and it's such a and the fact that virginia slims was so uh synonymous with women's tennis for 
decades. Like it wasn't just at this very moment of the of you know of the battle of the sexes and whatever. Like me growing up watching tennis in the eighties, when I first started watching tennis in the late eighties, Virginia Slims was still the sponsor of the bit like the year end tennis women's tennis tournament at Madison Square Garden. Like that was like they were still a major, major uh sort of sponsor. Which is hilarious to me because I can't imagine two things that go better together than highly aerobic activity and cigarettes. Well, that's what's so funny is you get this point where, like, I think Larry even says it to Marilyn about just, like, Billie Jean hates cigarettes. Like, uh, Sarah Silverman's character, it's like pulling teeth trying to get any of these women photographed smoking a Virginia Slim because they're all top tennis players. Of course they're not going to be smoking cigarettes. Do you know what I mean? But, um... It's it's a great it's a great runner throughout that movie and I think I every time Sarah Silverman just shows up it's just She's like wonderful. It's absolutely delightful. Um but yeah, I think I would have liked a lot more of the inner workings of this tennis tour. What what it meant that like Margaret Court was there playing with them but obviously was so separate from them and was, you know, so you know, homophobic and judgy and antagonistic and all this stuff. And one of the other interesting things that I uh, noticed in that, uh, the part right before the big match where they're interviewing the different celebrities about who they think is going to win the match. And like, you know, Lloyd Bridges now like on the record forever, uh, may he rest, um, as supporting Bobby Riggs, his friend. And like Ricardo Maltabon says that thing about just like the masculine muscle is a superior muscle, <laughs> like all this stuff. I was just like, oh, con. Um, but you got it's that moment. camp now. Right. You got that moment of Chris Everett, who was, you know, very, very early in her tennis career. And she would obviously become one of the greatest players ever talking about how she thought Bobby had the advantage in the match. And it made me realize, oh, right. Like, was Chris not part of this early WTA and what that would have meant? You know what I mean? Just like I would have loved so, so, so much more of that. And that's probably the tennis fan in me again, sort of coming out. But I thought even the dynamics that we got just between the women, I would have like I would have liked more of that and less of, let's say, Bobby and and uh, Priscilla Riggs's marriage. I do. What I do appreciate about this movie is there are like layers of antagonism, right? You know, it's it it's so easy, especially in like sports movies, to reduce it to like one big bad. I think a lesser movie would have right. made all of the like bad uh, misogyny become becoming just from bill pullman's character right whereas like this movie is really good to have like this kind of clownish misogyny coming from bobby you have like the call coming from uh within the homophobic house of uh the of uh, uh marlene court you Margaret have Clark. yeah the kind of like press apparatus asking like all of these gross questions you right. have like the Howard just, Cosell stuff where he talks mm-hmm. about how if she would, you know, take off her glasses and do her hair a little bit differently, she could be as beautiful as any Hollywood starlet, which is just like, it's classic uh, Howard Cosell bloviating, but it's also like, it's, you know, that's the way that people talked about women's professional athletics back then. And that was like, you know, oh God, like, it's just, it's really, really um, eye-opening. The Margaret Court stuff, I was so, so, so happy that um that they included it in this movie what a outright homophobic woman she is because especially at that time um and this is still sort of going on um she turned to sort of pentecostal ministry uh after her tennis career and has been in her native australia where she lives 
Um, very, very, very vocal, uh, anti LGBTQ, uh, statements and, and very much against, uh, lesbians in tennis does not never uh, spoke out against Billie Jean King as sort of a poor role model back in the day. She didn't think that, uh, that it was right for kids to look up to gay athletes or gay people in general has been very much against marriage equality in Australia. Um, all of these sort of things. And so there has been a movement within, uh, the tennis world. So she's obviously, she is a huge, huge, huge tennis figure, especially in Australia. She was a dominant tennis player of her era in the 1960s and into the early 70s. She won, um, ton of championships, one of the few women ever to win a uh, Grand Slam, which is all four of the major tennis tournaments in the same year. Uh, and so at one of the four major Grand Slam tournaments is the Australian Open, which is held in Melbourne. And one of the big stadiums there is named after Margaret Court. It's Margaret Court Stadium. And so there's been a movement recently to have her name sort of taken off of that stadium and named after, you know, another a different Australian player. And it's because... Name after a gay Australian player, please. Um, I'm not sure if Yvonne Gulagong is, that's who they want to name it after, Yvonne Gulagong, which wouldn't that be like the most fun name to ha- to say all the time? I would love it. Um, who was a great player of the sort of 70s and into the 80s. I'm not sure if she was a lesbian, but like there are plenty of lesbian women's tennis players you could name uh, it after. But just, uh, so there's been a lot of controversy over, you know, whether they should and uh, people like John McEnroe and Martina Navratilova are like very, very actively vocal in trying to get Margaret Court's name sort of scrubbed from uh, this this uh, stadium. And uh, so all of that was was sort of big in the tennis world at the time. And so it was very, very satisfying to have this movie really sort of paint Margaret, who could in other contexts be painted as just like one of the great tennis players of all time. Uh, but she, you know, they, they got into what a sort of toxic presence she was, uh, especially for Billie Jean at the time, which uh, the interesting thing about one of the many interesting things about this movie is it was, and you hear about it when they talk, when they were doing press about this movie, it was one of this sort of micro era of entertainment tv and movies that were conceived before the 2016 election and then came out after the 2016 election i always think of the first season of the good fight that had to really retool things because it was conceived with this assumption that hillary clinton was going to become the first woman president and that was going to become a big theme for the christine baranski character and then they had to really change it up and ultimately the good fight becomes one of the great tv shows about the trump era because it really really captures just how unmooring and how insane it made people feel um and battle of the sexes they talked a lot about how when they were conceiving this movie it seemed like hillary clinton was going to become the first woman president strike a you know major blow for uh for you know women in the country and after and then this movie's coming out early in the trump era which really you know shook a lot of a lot of people with regards to the fact that he could be so you know brazenly you know with the with the um the excess Hollywood tape and all this and like that. Just the fact that like uh that kind of almost like old school sexism. Like you know in this country how we like yeah. we we love we love to be able to um identify things like sexism and racism overtly, right? You use a word, you use a verboten word, or you, you know, you make something explicit. And we have a, a more of trouble with 
the, the more insidious ways that discrimination is uh, felt in this country. But anyway, um, the fact that somebody could be so overtly uh, sexist and, and harmful to women and yet still get elected uh, was something that they talked about a lot on this press tour and how it sort of changed the way that maybe this movie is going to be seen now. And so it was it makes it a little bit of an artifact, too, of that like, it- very particular moment. I mean, and I think maybe people would greet it a little bit more enthusiastically because I've been trying to, like, run my brain through it, especially while I was watching it. And I guess I was a little mystified at the time, too, why this movie was so unsuccessful. This movie made less money than the past two movies we've talked about, which, when you look at what those movies were, that's shocking. Yeah. Um. And... Wait, was... Yeah, it made... Uh, not less, it, okay, not less than Lucy in the Sky. I don't know. Not less than Lucy in the Sky, but less than something else that I was shocked by when I was looking at the numbers. Yeah. And I think this movie tries to take a more optimistic approach to some of those things, again, because it was conceived before the results of the election. And I don't. It, the type of movies that like felt like spoke to the moment uh your mileage may vary on whether you think they actually do i'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that um for what this oscar year was right i don't think anybody was willing was at that place of like looking for comfort or optimism in something like this Mm -hmm. and that's kind of why this movie quickly fell away when it plays very much like a crowd pleaser like the type of thing that you could put in front of just about anybody and they would enjoy. Yeah. I think also there is something to the way that the sort of the relative popularity of tennis within the United States, which it's always been an uphill battle for uh, tennis to have the kind of broad appreciation beyond like, obviously like somebody like Serena Williams is incredibly like famous and, uh, you know, notable and beloved as an athlete, but it's not always been easy to sort of transition from recognition and appreciation of the top tennis talent to recon- like to you know broad appreciation of tennis as a sport i think that's why you whenever you sort of talk to anybody who is a major figure in the sport so much of their mind and so much of their focus is on finding ways to make tennis as broadly appealing as possible and sort of and sell tennis. They're always sort of trying still selling tennis. And I think that comes from, you know, their years and years and years of fighting to make tennis seen as a major sport in America, which has always been very, very dominated by the major team sports, which is football and basketball and baseball and that kind of thing. Um, and so that's why even like these days, like Billie Jean King, who I think is an incredibly like fantastic figure in women's sports will still like put her foot in her mouth about some things. The thing with most recently with, you know, Naomi Osaka not wanting to do press at the French open and ultimately pulling out of that tournament. And Billie Jean King had a statement that was like measured, but also like not overly sympathetic to Naomi Osaka and talking about how, like, you know, I, you know, I feel for her and whatever, but like, these are the responsibilities that we have to sell our sport. And it's because Billie Jean King comes from a perspective of always needing to sell the sport in order to keep mm-hmm. it as a viable entity. And um, and so I think the relative sort of agnosticism that sometimes exists in this country for the sport of tennis probably comes through in the fact that a movie like Battle of the Sexes is not 
a broadly appealing film and is more of a niche thing, which is obviously, I feel like that's too bad because I'm obviously a giant tennis fan. But also, I think it's just like, it's too bad as a, as a, you know, the fact that people missed out on this great Emma Stone performance. Well, but that's the other thing, too. Like, I mean, you talk about like awardsy type audiences or like older audiences like the type of people that go to prestige movies like this they didn't really show up for this movie either in the way that you would think they were and those are not stereotypically the type of people i would say are sports people right true true i think but i wonder if that was but if i wonder if that maybe made it a turn off too that like if you're an indie film fan do you want to see the movie about sports do you know what i mean i mean you probably want to see the emma stone movie that's true right that's true yeah, that's just yeah, surprising I, about the box office for this movie because no, it died it is. very quickly despite yes. having good reviews. Despite... Right, it had good festival buzz. Like it really, and, yeah, and even like it had the kind of festival buzz that sometimes you need, which is, oh, this is better than maybe we thought it was going to be. There was a, there was a little bit of like pleasant surprise to that buzz, which is all, which is what you want. You want to sort of be surpassing expectations, and I think. A lot of people in the wake of Emma Stone winning the Oscar for La La Land. I think I've always talked, I talked about, I'll talk about a lot about how we always seem to be in this perpetual preparation for an Emma Stone backlash. And <laughs> it never comes because she's always so good. We always have to keep reminding ourselves that Emma Stone is great. And I think we want to sort of turn her into, um, I always feel like we want to, we, uh, not me, but like we as like a culture in a way that like we, aren't always at our best as a culture are looking to give her the sort of the Anne Hathaway backlash, the Anna Kendrick backlash, the sort of thing that we do to very popular and younger actresses who experience a lot of success. And there's always just like a little bit of like, not so fast, you know, lady kind of a thing, which is an ugly uh, aspect of our culture. And I think Emma Stone keeps thwarting it by just being good. She's, you know, great in battle of the sexes she's great in the favorite every single time she shows up on snl i know i'm a broken record about this but like she's one of the great saturday night live hosts of her era and every single time she shows up it feels like there's this like preemptive almost like sigh from the culture about just like oh god emma stone not again and it's just like oh no and now she's gonna knock like three sketch sketches out of the park and it's just like oh right she's great and she's even gonna emerge like unscathed from cruella which is like largely reviled by a lot of people and then hey, like, enjoyed by people who don't take it super seriously. I thought that movie was atrocious, but like um, I had a great time. Go see Cruella. It's I had a nightmare time. Um she has a great time in that though. She and Emma Thompson are 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 you know, I don't having even know if she has a great time, but I think, I think she's, she's having a great time. completely unscathed from the Oh movie. yeah. Yeah. As she should be. She shouldn't be like if even if even taking the point that people don't like that movie and I get it to a point. Um, I don't think there's any reason to put the the your dissatisfaction for that movie on Emma Stone's shoulders because she's, you know, I think she's giving it to you. She brings it to you every ball. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, uh, there's a lot of things going on that kind of uh, converge around this movie in terms of, like, it. when you rewatch it now, it feels like Emma Stone is the most likely thing to really get awards attention for it but mm-hmm. because she was just she had just come off a win and this is also a searchlight movie and yeah. they had what would end up being the two best picture front runners mm-hmm. for right. the most of the season right and this movie got shoved to and the best actress front runner is the other thing 
Yes, and uh, that as well. In a Best Actress year, that is incredibly competitive. Yes, yes. And it seemed for a moment there... her out of frame. If you, it, there was a moment in that early fall... Even after the movie premiered and it didn't get wasn't doing great numbers, where it felt like Emma Stone was really in the the meat of that uh, best actress race and was you know very likely going to end up with a nomination. She's playing a real person, which the Oscars love. She's playing somebody who like you know we've always all those Oscar stories where like you bring that real person on the campaign trail, like Billie Jean King. The real Billie Jean King was Philomena Leeing her way through that uh, promotional cycle for that movie. Like she showed up at Toronto. She showed up at Telluride. She was at all she the was things. Emma Stone's plus one to the Globes. Right, right. Emma Stone went to the U.S. Open with her that year and was, you know, obviously seen uh, enjoying the matches. And so, like, there was, like, there the the campaign was there. Like, the ingredients were there. And then, um, for whatever reason... And it I'm, had built up for a long time because I remember Emma Stone's... I'm pretty sure it's in her Vogue 70-whatever uh, questions... They ask her, like, who she thinks is a hero or who her hero is, and she says Billie Jean King. And this mm. is during her La La Land campaign. Oh, that's interesting. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. I'm pretty so sure th- that's during La La Land. So, yeah, I would believe Post. it. Um, so, yeah. So then all of a sudden, the air sort of fell out of that, and that ri- that sort of lineup coalesced around a different group. I think... The Francis McDormand three billboards thing was obviously a big part of that, where, like, after the festival season, Francis sort of shot up to... Because I think before that, before the, uh, three billboards started playing festivals, I think there was a question around whether that movie was going to resonate, how big of a thing was this movie going to be. It felt like Searchlight was sort of... The trailer they put out for it was so heavy on how huge Francis McDormand was going. Yes. That, like, um, it definitely had word of mouth just for that right but i also but it did feel like searchlight was kind of keeping the cards close to the vest for a while and then once the festivals happened and it got you know really great for as much as that movie was you know contentious with a lot of people it also got great reception out of the festivals and then all of a sudden it was sort of off to the races but i also think a thing that really um and obviously the the fact that the other Searchlight movie that did great that award season also had a best actress campaign there with Sally Hawkins. Mm-hmm. So Emma Stone was already third in the pecking order at best, like at best. And was Victoria and Abdul also Searchlight? Focus. There we go. Okay. But the other thing was, um, uh, sorry, uh, is that, yes, is that also, uh, coming to fruition in that festival season was Lady Bird happened. And mm-hmm. Lady Bird was another one that like was not heralded from like a year ahead. You know what I mean? It wasn't one of those just like look out Lady Bird's coming. There was a lot of people weren't quite sure if Greta Gerwig could make it happen as a director, at least off right off the bat. And all of a sudden Lady Bird became like the crowd pleaser of crowd pleasers of that festival season. And then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, okay, well now we have a best actress race that already has three like lock solid Francis McDormand, Jess, or, uh, not Jessica Chastain, although God, if Jessica Chastain and Molly's game um, had gotten nominated, I would have loved it. Um, <laughs> Francis McDormand, Sally Hawkins, 
Saoirse Ronan. And then <laughs> what ends up happening is, oh, we are going to have a Best Actress nominee who's playing a real-life uh, sporting figure from a very incredibly, you know, notable uh, sporting event. But it ends up being Margot Robbie in I, Tonya. And once then you add Meryl Streep in the post to the mix, and, like, Meryl Streep giving a great performance is not going to miss. Do you know what I in mean? In a it Spielberg very, movie. It very rarely happens. And, I, again, I have been on the record as saying uh that would i would have voted for meryl uh for best actress that year i thought she was phenomenally good in the post no she's great in that movie i mean she's definitely not my last place um and i think uh francis mcdormand getting a, a third oscar for acting this year technically a fourth but her third for acting this mm-hmm. year uh definitely changes things even further yeah you want to be sort of like go back and just be like well we don't need to give you this for three billboards and by the way i think she's great in three billboards like i know again that movie was very contentious and i have you know my feelings about that movie are are complicated positive um but i think my feelings about that movie are like complicated useless um, because it's ultimately, I think it's ultimately just this blind rage movie that is about expression of blind rage. And that's truly the thing that connected people to it if they connected to it. Yeah. Um, and I think that her performance like embodies that well, whereas a lot of other things in the movie embody that poorly. Um, yeah, I think that movie doesn't do everything well, and a lot of that movie made me very, very angry, but a lot of that movie I also felt like this is, for the for the moment, for the cultural moment and historical moment that we were in at that moment, which again, was like 2017, we were really sorting out our feelings. But I think one of the things that Three Billboards spoke to that really resonated with me was like, oh, we are in a moment where everybody is incredibly angry and nobody really knows what the recourse for this is or what we want to do with it. And, and I thought that movie resonated along those lines the most strongly. And again, as you, as you said, her performance is sort of the eye of that particular storm. And that's what I think that movie does probably the best of anything. But and I agree. I just, I don't, think it ultimately serves any purpose that's why i was like complicated useless like i don't i I don't know if that movie uh even if that's true and even if it would be the best version of that which i don't think it is i i don't i i think it doesn't really have much of a purpose um because like our what did our blinds rage serve us in uh those years absolutely nothing um right but but i guess to me my 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 and we don't have to, you know, argue about three billboards throughout this entire podcast. Oh, but please like, God, no. My feeling is that, like, I don't know if it necess- if necessarily knowing what to do with that rage is, A, something that movie is interested in, or B, something that movie needs to be interested in. I think it... I, think it, I mean, I agree with that. Um, but anyway. Uh, and then... But outs- anyway, I mean, the Best Actress race definitely... I mean, like, you mentioned uh, all the nominees, but, like, it it stayed pretty contentious for, and I would say ended up being the five most obvious nominees. But, like... It was going to be really hard to budge any one of those five women out of that race, is the thing. Like, and there were some really good contenders. I mentioned Jessica Chastain. Judy Dench was definitely closer than people probably want to admit. Probably a close sixth, I would say. Um... 
from the other Globe nominees, you have Jessica Chastain in Molly's Game. Michelle Williams being quite good in All the Money in the World. No one wanted to like that movie but me. Um. And that movie really came on strong at the end of that award season. The fact that it got that Christopher Plummer Oscar nomination to me is bananas, but like, I guess good for the 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 team from All the Money in the World for salvaging what was a PR disaster with the Kevin Spacey thing. And like, that is one of the, they should make a movie about that. They should make a movie about the All the Money in the World uh, release and Oscar campaign, just because it's just like, it's one of the great, pulling victory from the jaws of defeat thing i've well, ever seen in my entire life well and it stayed a pr disaster too when it was revealed that michelle williams yes, made also like that. a tenth of what mark Wahlberg did for the reshoots i defy anybody to name to name 10 things about all the money in the world and have one of them be mark Wahlberg, unless it is specifically that salary dispute like he's so much not an entity in he's that the only movie, thing I even didn't though like he's movie. he's the ostensible lead of the movie, and it's just like nothing. Even if you and again, I don't hate that movie. I don't love that movie. Um, I liked it, but he just doesn't register at all. Absolutely not at all. Um, the most what a bananas, weird, bonkers, what a weird thing. Uh, best actress pick. BAFTA nominated Annette Bening for film stars don't die in Liverpool. A movie that I really, really wanted to love and didn't, even though I think Benning is good in it. But Well, but by that point, because like BAFTA is one of the last things to come out before yeah. Oscar, nobody was talking about that movie. But it felt like the movies for grownups uh, nominated her. <laughs> but it felt like BAFTA was almost doing the tweet of like, you know who we're not talking about that we should be talking about is Annette Benning and film stars don't die in Liverpool. <laughs> like it was like it would it very much was a I think they were trying to almost like make a statement. That is a movie that I think is done in by its insistence on cleaving to the perspective of its male lead character who is intimately involved in the production of the film. I think um I think it's maybe a more interesting movie if it's more if it's less about sort of showing what a great guy the Jamie Bell character is. Um but I also just don't think, I don't know, I wanted it to be, I wanted to be more sort of emotionally wrapped up in it or something. I don't know. I was, of course, in a very, very pro Annette Benning place the year after 20th Century Women. So, like, I get the idea no that way everybody it was going to be, be as good as 20th Century Women. No, of course. Movie, though. Um, no, but but at the very least, I would have been just like, you know, we owe Annette Benning so much. <laughs> and um, <laughs> well, We don't have to talk too much about that movie because we could eventually do an episode on it. Yeah, probably will at some point. I haven't seen it, too, so that would be interesting. Obviously, the big story of the actresses in the awards season that year, of course, was the fact that I predicted correctly that Helen Mirren would get a Golden Globe nomination for The Leisure Seeker, and we're not talking about that (laughs) enough. That's my great (laughs) victory in my entire career of following the Golden Globes in the awards season, is that I fucking nailed that. That's when the Globe should have ended. You know, because how was that ever? How are you going to top it? How are you going to top Helen Mirren getting nominated for The Leisure Seeker? And literally, like, that morning, I tweeted my predictions. And then I think it was Katie who was just like, wait a second, did you just call that? (laughs) Just like, yeah, somehow. Because it was the year (laughs) after she got nominated. She had been nominated for The Woman in Gold. She had been nominated for The 100-Foot Journey. I was just like, she's not going to miss even just because she's in a movie that nobody's ever seen or heard about. Well, and Globe's comedy was so light 
Like, yeah. to the point where they're like, I, is a comedy, even though, like, there's comedic stuff in that, but... Yeah. I mean, that's part of that movie's problem. Um, Judy Dench was nominated there for Victoria and Abdul. Again, laugh okay. a minute, Victoria and Abdul. Yeah. Um, yeah, a sequel to a movie that was decidedly if... a drama. <laughs> right. I mean, except for... I mean, like, I... If you understand... It, I think at the time I had made this, like, bullshit claim that maybe I still stand by is, like, maybe you could nominate Steve Carell for comedy and her for drama. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> some stupid thing that, like, whatever. Um, so Steve Carell ends up It being... makes you wonder, though, if comedy had been more crowded if a they wouldn't have pushed that movie as a comedy i mean it's not but, a comedy is the but thing. also if she would have even been nominated and then she wouldn't have had anything right. for the season. right i i'm i'm of two minds on that part of me wants to be sort of steadfastly uh adhere to my principles and my principles say that battle of the sexes is very much not a comedy and it's bullshit that it was placed in those categories and yet you're right i do i am glad that emma stone was not was recognized by at least somebody for um for that performance and i don't think where do you think she would have shown up in the final ranking i wonder if she would have even been in the top 10 final oscar voting because we also forget that like one of the big surprises oscar morning was how well phantom thread did and i would be of course always interested to see the vote totals but like i would be very interested to see how vicky how close vicky creeps was i think probably I don't know if Vicky Creeps ended up being would have ended up being close to an Oscar nomination, but I think her outpacing Emma Stone is a possibility for sure. I think it's a l- uh, probably likely. We'll see. I don't know. The thing about Vicky Creeps is she was a big, big fave among like a very, very sort of even among you know people who like Phantom Thread. I think there were probably a lot of the sort of P.T. Anderson, Daniel Day Lewis adherents who just like voted for it for that and maybe weren't necessarily doing the creeps thing that maybe uh our little corner of twitter was at the time but i i mean but you could have said that about the movie until those nominations happened yeah and i think that's true and i think leslie manville getting a nomination is sort of uh you know points in your favor but um I don't know. I, love I have creeps, though. I will be one of those people that was like Vicky Creeps. Yeah, <laughs> you could have said you that are you are not alone. Like I feel like my entire timeline around then was making like um you know my Justice little hungry creeps, my little hungry man um memes and whatnot. I uh, <laughs> for the hungry boy. Um, yeah, uh, very excited for Vicky Creeps this summer. She has the new Mia Hansen love at Cannes, and also how dare uh, you mention Shyamalan's old. How dare you mention any movie before old in uh, why we're excited for old is going to be terrible. I'm excited. Comes out the week of this episode or the week after this episode. I'm just excited to to tweet that old that uh, old is my favorite Vicky Creeps movie and uh, inherit and inherit that whirlwind just uh, just for the thrill of it just for the fucking thrill I of it. Never understand why you hate that movie so much. I don't even um, hate it. I just hate that other people are so fucking extra about that movie. Well, Find other filmmakers to stand. P.T. Anderson is only one man. He can only, you know, support so much of your fucking... I think the people that shit. lost their mind over that movie are not the people who are usually loud about Paul Thomas Anderson. I think they were there. I think, I those think people, there's a certain I think those people relationship showed up. dynamic that people connect to in that movie, and I am maybe ashamed to say that I also connect 
too. Yeah, I did not have uh, the life experience to be able to connect to that movie on that level. So for me, it was uh, not as exciting. Um, You can can be the Leslie Manville. You are my Leslie Manville. Oh, I'll always be the Leslie Manville to that movie. Um, uh, That's fine. Okay, uh, back to Battle of the Sexes, though. The big winner, award season-wise, for Battle of the Sexes ended up being Steve Carell, because not only did he get the Golden Globe nomination... Uh, he got a SAG nomination for Supporting Actor, which is more, like, he is more of a, su- well, no, I don't know if I would necessarily say that. A lot of he the times- He should be more supporting than he is. I he think should be more supporting than he is. I think My that's problem right. with the Bobby Riggs stuff in this movie is, like, I do think it is interested in a more nuanced, like, portrayal of him and, like, kind mm-hmm. of understanding the layers and such and, like, not trying to necessarily outright villainize him but see him as, like, a product of a certain, like, world and realm and, like, just trying to understand, uh, you know, what his motivations are on a level that's not exclusively interested in demonizing him. However, <laughs> I think we get more of that than we need. And it's like, at a certain point, it's like, no, we get it. We're smart enough to see, you know, the layers of what you're doing here. Yeah. I I don't think we need that much of Bobby Riggs in this movie. So he's nominated for Supporting Actor at the SAG Awards uh, alongside four of the eventual Oscar nominees, um, Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson, both from Three Billboards, Richard Jenkins from The Shape of Water, who is so good in The Shape of Water. Like, I... Every time I see that movie, I'm just... We really disagree on this performance, too. Do you not like Richard Jenkins in The Shape of Water? I think he's perfectly fine. I think he's That feels like a performance tailor-made for you to love it. I don't think that's a performance that needed an Oscar nomination. Oh, I so disagree. He's not even the performance I think about when I think about that movie. What is? I mean, probably Sally Hawkins, but like the supporting performances. I was the Octavia Spencer. Oh, we disagree uh, on that. See, I think... I think Octavia Spencer's nomination for that movie was a waste. I just don't think she has very much to do in that movie. I think she brings an absolute dynamic to that movie that is needed. I love that character that she is. It's essentially a movie enough about, for a like, nomination though. Like it's I don't a think movie she's about loneliness bad. and like she's the yeah. type of lonely person who won't shut the fuck up. You know, like the type of Chris. lonely person who like the way of processing how alone they feel is that they can't stop talking. To people who aren't even listening to them. I don't know how you can say that that's a movie about loneliness. Her best and friend this, is someone who literally can't, like, speak. Yeah, I no, mean, but she I... speaks to her through sign, right. but... Right, but what I'm saying is, to to sort of centralize that aspect of the movie correctly, and then in the same breath be like, I don't know why it was such a big deal about Richard Jenkins, who, like... Sells. This is just me defending her. I like her oh. performance more than his. Oh my god! Oh, and she's so also disagree. really funny in the movie too. That brings a whole level that is needed to that movie. I don't know. And if it like, was enough I just for think, a nomination like, that's, for me. I don't know. That's man. how people take uh, uh, take her for granted. Is like that she can go and ace exactly what the assignment is. Listen, but like if she doesn't. The movie's not as good. She should have won Best Actress for Ma. I am very much an Octavia Spencer person. <laughs> um, but just that is that is a nomination I would not have given her. Anyway. The uh, thing about Steve Carell's SAG nomination, I think, is it really showed how, like, the fifth slot in that category was pretty in flux. Yeah. Uh, throughout the season. Yeah, because at the Globes, it was... Um, Army Hammer. Right, Army Hammer for Call Me By Your Name. And again, 
not even the Call Me By Your Name performance that I would have put in there. Like, it's still befuddling Yeah, only to Critics' me. Choice nominated Michael Stolbarg, which is also... Michael Stolbarg is probably my winner that year. I should bring that yeah, up. Oh, no question. He's mine. Um, much as I loved Willem Dafoe in The Florida Project and thought he was wonderful, um, Michael Stolbarg is my winner that year for Call Me By Your Name. And it's, the yeah, the fact that the bullshitty Critics' Choice are the only ones to give him any kind of uh, recognition is crazy. And then the fact that, like, again, all the money in the world comes creeping back into this conversation again and, like... Because Christopher Plummer got the Golden Globe nomination. That was the one where, like, all the money in the world gets, what is it? Director, Uh, actress, and and supporting actor. Director, actor, uh, actress, and supporting actor at the Globes. And you're just like, ha ha, Globes are going to globe. Like, we're all going to find this incredibly silly. Uh, This is going to be the Aaron Taylor Johnson and Nocturnal Animals of, uh, of this year or whatever. And then the fact that Plummer... Like comes back around again and gets the the Oscar nomination. His second, his third, his third Oscar nomination, third. um, and obviously final one. Um, which is kind of too bad because he could have gotten a nomination for Knives Out, and I would have been happy about it. Um, but it's just like it's the craziest story. It's the absolute craziest story for again a role that was filmed in reshoots because Kevin Spacey was revealed to be a sex criminal. So fun. Like, fantastic. I mean, like, they definitely gave degree of difficulty points because, like, they shot that so quickly, like, right before the movie was supposed to come out. Yeah. Also, I do think there was a small element of it that was kind of a fuck you to Spacey. Um, But also, Christopher Plummer is really good in that movie. Do we think Christopher Plummer finished second in the Oscar voting in that category? No. Who do you think did? Defoe. Defoe, but a distant second. Defoe is that movie's only nominee. I guess Plummer is too for his movie. Um, people are people are like willing to recognize him as a legend now. If he gets nominated for the Vincent Van Gogh movie, nobody sees. Like, I think I, it's safe to say Defoe was second place, but a distant second place. It's interesting. We t- we're talking about Michelle Williams and all the money in the world. That um, that he and Michelle Williams both have the same number of career Oscar nominations now, and I think. All of the oxygen is in the well. When will X win an Oscar? Conversation is going to Amy Adams right now, and you know, understandably so. But Michelle Williams will have an Oscar before Amy Adams does. Oh, that's a prediction. I'm going to write that down. When? All right, I'm going to make you pay me money now for me, all the times <laughs> I've made uh, invisible. Uh, what do you want to? What do you want to bet on that? Fifty bucks. Fifty dollars. Yes, fifty dollars. That's a big bet. What am I made of money? Um. All right. Fifty dollars. Though. So, we're, are we putting a a a time limit on this? Or no? You're just saying no. at, on the course on the long, long timeline of life, uh, Michelle Williams will get an Oscar for acting before Amy Adams gets an Oscar for acting. Yes. All right. I'm in. I'll make that bet. All right. Cool. Um. But you anyway, have two years to get Colin Farrell an Oscar, my friend. Fuck off. Fuck off. I'm going to end up owing you like hundreds of dollars in gambling debts. I'm going to be the Bobby Riggs of our uh, podcast, and I'm going to have to resort to like more and more ostentatious stunts in order to fund my gambling debts to you. Um, One note that we should make about Bobby Riggs in comparison to Trump is like both of those are figures of people who just owe tons of money to the mob. Okay. Um, I think that's a not inconsiderable thing. The idea that not the, the owing money to the mob thing, although a good note um but 
a thing that could have resonated if more people had seen this movie is this idea that Bobby Riggs's sexism was ultimately buffoonish and in many ways performative and in many ways there as you know you could say well self-advancement you know, he doesn't he doesn't necessarily mean it he's there for he's he's using it to get attention and these were the things that we've talked about that get talked about donald trump all the time it's just like oh he's saying this just you know to say it and ultimately and and i think what the trump era one of the things that the Trump era has taught us, one of the many, many sad lessons that we've learned, is um, is that old, you know, Kurt Vonnegut lesson of, like, you are what you pretend to be. You know what I mean? Ultimately, the fact that Donald Trump, you know, the reasons that Donald Trump was, you know, saying the things that he was saying is kind of immaterial because it was taken seriously by enough people. And I think the Bobby Riggs thing is sort of similar to that, which is... Ultimately, it doesn't necessarily matter in the long run if you were doing this to put on a show. Uh, is the effect of, you know, saying over and over and over again that women belong in the kitchen, that women aren't equal to men, that women shouldn't get paid as much as men, yada, yada, yada. Like, he is saying that stuff as a clown, but what Battle of the Sexes shows is that it's backed up by somebody like Jack Kramer, who was saying that as a cold-blooded businessman. Mm-hmm. And that these, you know, just because something is being espoused as a joke doesn't mean that there isn't, like, real insidiousness behind that in the system. Is my feeling. Indeed. Like all these uh, stand-up comics that constantly say horrible things and then uh, lose their careers and then say even worse because they're just supported by people who believe them. Yeah. Anyway, to wrap up the supporting actor race. Yes. Uh, the, that fifth slot at BAFTA went to Hugh Grant for Paddington 2. Oh, I'm gonna fuck. going to pause so everybody can cheer because the everyone who loves Paddington 2... Yeah, God. If you liked my Vicky Creeps material, you're going to love my fucking Paddington 2 material. Um, (laughs) I still haven't seen the Paddingtons. I'm going to pause again so that someone can try to um, end my life. Um, And then BAFTA, aside from Stuhlbarg, which everybody should have been doing, they also did Patrick Stewart for Logan. Insert jerk-off motion here. (laughs) Did you know... Insert me making my one billionth did you know Logan is a Western uh, joke. Yeah. Um, I... There are people I know and love and respect who would probably also make that Patrick Stewart and Logan uh, claim. Same. Same. I I, I still respect their opinion. I think that it is... um, uh, stupid yeah um i want to talk about we haven't talked about jonathan dayton and valerie ferris and we should because uh they had as much oscar pedigree as anybody going into this film because of course they uh previously directed a best picture nominee in little miss sunshine best picture nominee and likely um second place that's very probable yeah yeah yeah. i think that's probably true although again that race was super wide open i would again love to see the vote totals in that one i remember I think my prediction going into those Oscars was that Babel was going to win, but um, I was obviously on the wrong track there. Um, But Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, they've directed three feature films, The Little Miss Sunshine, this, and in between these two movies, uh, Ruby Sparks, which is a movie that I think presents as the thing that it is satirizing, which is sometimes a challenge, especially when it comes to a a movie that is pitched to an indie audience who likes to feel uh, 
very much smarter than the movies that they are uh, talking about sometimes. And I think the thing with Ruby Sparks is a, a lot of people initially sort of tarred it with the brush of being a Manic Pixie Dream Girl offender when it is, in fact, a Manic Pixie Dream Girl uh, criticism, uh, which is yes. very interesting. Written by Zoe Kazan. and Cast is wild. Yeah. Um, it's, it's Zoe Kazan and Paul Dano, right? Real life... Uh, yes. Real life couple? Yeah. Real life partners. Uh, yeah, Emma, or not Emma, uh, Annette Benning is in that film. Antonio Banderas, of course, making it a um, life itself uh, 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 pre, <laughs> uh, making life itself, I guess, a Ruby Sparks reunion <laughs> for Annette Benning and uh, Antonio Banderas. It's a really interesting little movie. Nobody really I talks about it these it. days. Um, it's really interesting. But of course, before they made those films, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris were very, very much notable as music video directors. And that is sort of the medium where they came up in. They directed videos by Jane's Addiction and um, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. They directed the Go Deep video, the Janet Jackson Go Deep video. They directed Corn, Corn's Freak on a Leash video. But most, most, most notable uh, were videos for the Smashing Pumpkins, including Tonight Tonight, which won the MTV Video Music Award for Best Director and is, if you've ever seen it, incredibly memorable based on uh, the film uh, A Trip to the Moon. And... Um, is a it sort of looms large from my teenage years of a music video that I was just sort of entranced by. I was very much, uh, I had my melancholy and the infinite sadness double CD and played it often. I was really, really into that album. And so Jonathan and da- Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris were from that like prime era of celebrity, like superstar music video directors, which like, David Fincher was from that era, and uh, Jonathan Glazer was from that era, and just these, you know, that Mark was Romanek. when Mark Romanek, exactly. That was when uh, Hype Williams. Uh, that was when my favorite thing that MTV ever did was when they would play music videos and they would put the little like square in the corner of telling you like the artist, the song title, the album, and then and they the would director. tell you the director of the video. And I think that did a lot to sort of and and again, me being the little sort of budding film nerd that I was, it really was fun to watch and be like, oh yeah, that movie looks like a Samuel Bayer movie because or uh, that video looks like a Samuel Bayer video because, you know, there's scratches on the on the you know, film and it looks very, you know, sort of like grungy and very, you know, think, you know, garbage, stupid girl kind of stuff. Um, And so being able to pick out the kind of visual language of the different music video directors was always very, very fun for me. Um, So Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, because of, I think that Tonight Tonight video especially, became one of the sort of like better regarded music video directors. They were offered... uh, The Mod Squad, the 1999 uh, film version of The Mod Squad with Claire Danes and Omar Epps that ultimately was a flop. And they were also offered, uh, according to at least to uh, my research that I saw, uh, Bad Boys 2, (laughs) ultimately. um, Okay. Which is wild to me. First of all, that Michael Bay wouldn't have just been, you know, a given to direct bad boys too but also just like i i don't i don't know what their version of that movie would be um it sort of runs counter to a lot of their sensibilities especially see when you see the films that they did make which is you know sort of very much um you know indie might some might say quirky some might say sort of humanistic 
uh, films like that. So I think that's very interesting. Where do you come down on their filmography? Um, I mean, like a, a little. Ruby Sparks is the one I need to see because I feel like Ruby Sparks is probably the one that I would say I like the most. Um, but I I need a fresher view of it. Yeah. Like I feel very much the same way about Little Miss Sunshine as I do Battle of the Sexes. That I have very like like frustrating snags with the movie that like don't take it all the way there as it like is very close to being and then i just sound like a grouch um i think there are people who are a lot grouchier about little miss sunshine than you are though i think that movie has some very loud detractors especially among the sort of uh film i probably would say this is safely better than i think that movie is i think little miss sunshine is a pure crowd pleaser and i don't resent that the way that I think a lot of other people do. I I really I really jive with that movie. I think that movie is um, pretty wonderful in a lot of respects. I'm glad that they worked with Carell again because Steve Carell's performance in that movie is one of my favorites. Um, I think that is a movie that sort of dares to steer into its own sort of good feeling in a way that I think other movies might try and be a little bit more um, cynical about. And mm-hmm. I think uh, my my good friend Linda Holmes, who uh, is uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour on NPR uh, co-host, said about that movie at the time that it's always stuck with me. And she says, she said that not every movie could earn the ending that Little Miss Sunshine like I feel just the fact that like that movie ending with that sort of dance off um, would wouldn't work as well in a movie that doesn't sort of earn it. And I think I agree with that. And I think that's maybe the thing that unlocks that movie for me is that like the rest of that movie gets you to that moment in a way that allows at least me to really you know accept that as as the way that that movie was going to end. And I don't know. I really love it. And I still really love it. And I like Battle of the Sexes quite a bit, but it doesn't quite get me to that kind of, you know, emotional moment that Little Miss Sunshine does. Little Miss Sunshine just makes me incredibly happy. Well, yay. (laughs) Well, good for you, Joe. Glad you're happy. Can I tell you something that makes me happy? Yeah. The AARP movies for grown Fuck yeah, give it to me. Okay, so Steve Carell is nominated for Best Actor, Lead Actor. Loses to Gary Oldman, no surprise there. However, Darkest Hour, sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, the eventual Oscar. Darkest Hour, a good movie, so suck it. Darkest Hour, <laughs> um, I don't have any strong feelings about it. I think what is good about it is Joe Wright. Oh yeah. Otherwise, it's... that movie, who cares? Um, yeah, but like, Joe Wright is a not inconsiderable part of that movie, considering he directed it. Um, my thing that annoys people that I don't even know if I f- fully stand by, but I, Darkest Hour is the movie that uh, Lincoln wants to be, is the thing that makes everybody crazy when boo, I say it. <laughs> boo, 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 Absolutely not. Uh, no, How but there's a lot of a lot of what I love. Of Tony Kushner. A, a lot of what I love about Darkest Hour is also stuff that I 
I like, and of course I would, I, you know, that people really sort of sung the praises of Lincoln for, which is it's very processy about a very political, a sort of like, you know, a world affecting political decision. And I like that. Um, I agree with everybody that the scene on the tube is uh, maybe not the best one. Bad. It's it's bad. The scene of him exposing himself to Lily James, bad. Oh, bad. yeah! God, I always forget about that. Um, see, Darkest Hour, what, what is good about it, I ascribe to Joe Wright. Lincoln, what is great about Lincoln, I ascribe to Tony Kushner. Um, anyway, AARP Movie for Grown Up Awards also nominated uh, Battle of the Sexes for their most unwell category. This Uh-oh. is becoming a new fascination. Intergenerational? Not intergenerational, but best time capsule. Oh God! Yeah, the one where they f- said that Vera Drake was a was a great time capsule. <laughs> was a great time capsule. Yeah, this isn't quite as unwell, but it's. It, 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 uh, let me just read the rest. Uh-huh. Darkest Hour. Understandable. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. The Post. Kind of understandable. Yeah. I, Tanya. <laughs> Be, because, yes, it does a great job of immortalizing the tackiness of uh, the early 90s, late 80s. Here's what sure. I will say to that, Chris, is if I could take a time machine to 1994, I would and I wouldn't look back. And it would be great to know you. But you know what? I'm going. You know who should be recognized for like for doing what that movie does well with the time period? That should have been nominated for costumes. Was it nominated for costumes? I don't believe so. Hold on. I feel like somebody nominated it for costumes and it was like, that's smart. Looking it up right now. Of course, as I mentioned the last time, IMDb has changed their layout, so I don't know where anything fucking is anymore. I have to scroll down so far to get to the awards. BAFTA did. See, you found it before I did. Where the fuck? Ow. Hit my elbow in my tiny closet. Uh, Oscar nominees, uh, the two acting performances it was nominated for, and then film editing, which is... The choice. Um, BAFTA nominated for costume and makeup, which I think are both uh, are, are good nominations. Yeah. Anyway. The AARP Movie for Grown Ups winner of Best Time Capsule of 2017. Can I give you a guess? Do you want to guess? 2017 Time Capsule. Um... Let's see. What were the major movies that year? I mean, honestly... Like something, I I don't think you would be mentioning this if it's something like Call Me by Your Name had won, even though I think that's an incredibly uh, evocative, uh, you know, eighties of its period, sort absolutely of period uh, uh, thing. Um, God, if it's like The Greatest Showman, I'll shit. It is not The Greatest Showman. It is uh, a Oscar-winning Dunkirk. Fuck off. Twinks drowning the movie, best time capsule. Like I get it. Like it does capture like period detail of World War World War Two. But like I don't know. They they need to get a better name for it because best time capsule makes you think of like nostalgia. Well, this is the thing: is time isn't this a nice time? Like, isn't it a nice revisit of that time? Time capsule, Dunkirk. It is literally Twinks drowning the movie. Time capsule is so 
personal to the voter, right? So if it's an AARP award, obviously it's going to be a time capsule for people who are older than us. So it's, you know, uh, and I mean, you know, you got to be pretty old to, to be like, oh, remember what it was like at Dunkirk. But uh, for someone like, about Dunkirk. for someone Dunkirk like me, and- I think of like, Lady Bird was a great time capsule because it exists oh, in the early 2000s. That's like my senior year of high school. Right, exactly. But like we are of an age where like Lady Bird would speak to us on the time capsule level in a way that like a typical AARP movies for grown-ups voter wouldn't. Um but yeah, I think that category maybe doesn't fully uh, explain itself. Where are you just saying Why best movie that took place before? That like yeah. Best evocation of an era? Like, I think when calling it best time capsule, you are sort of making the implicit argument that, you know, oh, could I, oh, to be teleported back to this time. And maybe that's not the case for, you know, what we want to say about Dunkirk. You know, what was nominated for best grown up love story this year? What? The Leisure Seeker. Fuck yeah. Wait, who's the male lead <laughs> in The Leisure Seeker? Donald Sutherland. Oh my God. For. Other nominees are Souls at Night, the Netflix movie that maybe 15 people watched. Mm -hmm. Breathe, which maybe two people watched, including me. I had to Um, watch our Souls at Night, by the way, and review it because it was a Netflix movie. And that was the time where I was reviewing every Netflix release back when there was, you know, one major one a week instead of like 20. Um, Yeah, uh, our Souls at Night, Jane Fonda and Robert Redford. And uh, it's real boring. And uh, do you know what won Best Grown Up Love Story? Only four nominees. Um, well, I know all the Phantom Thread people are probably bitching and moaning that it wasn't that. Um, I mean, Shape of Water is probably not grown up enough for grown up love story, right? They're probably too young. No, that one best fish fucking love story. <laughs> I don't know. Tell me what one best uh, grown up love story. The Greatest Showman. Fuck off. Oh, my God. <laughs> The worst, for as much as, like, I don't hate that movie the way a lot of people hate that movie, but, like, the worst part of that movie is absolutely the love story. Like, Jesus Christ. Anyway. Uh, Any last thoughts on Battle of the Sexes? Um, I I jotted down um, the fact that the closing credits song, uh, which is called If I Dare by Sarah Bareilles, um... I really love Sarah Bareilles. And in the in the post-Girls 5 Eva era, I really love Sarah Bareilles. I will sing her praises, no pun intended, to anybody who will ask. I'm so impressed by uh, how funny she is on that show. Um, I also just love her voice. Her voice brings me... Once she started singing, I was just like, ah, oh, like, you know, a nice little wave of calm sort of passed over me. Uh, Lyrics-wise and song-wise, this song doesn't, you know... Uh, break any uh, barriers or anything like that but i will say sarah Bareilles b-side yeah but in an era where we're getting so many sort of milk toast um i'm gonna slander my my queen diane warren but like these sort of like the diane warren songs of this era that have been nominated the mudbound mary j blige songs that have been nominated this kind of thing i don't think Sarah Bareilles, If I Dare, is any worse than those and probably is, you know, among the sort of top tier of, um, you know, Grateful from uh, 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 Beyond the Lights or the uh, RBG song or the like. You tell me that Sarah Bareilles doesn't deserve a nomination if those are going to be your nominees year in, year out. Yeah. 
right? I forget how far she got in the like Bake Off eligibility. I don't think she got very far. I don't think it was in the like final. I don't think it was because I probably would have been, you know, more uh, actively uh, writing for it just because I love her. Uh, Original song at the Globes that year were uh, This Is Me from Greatest Showman won it. Uh, Mighty River, which ended up being an Oscar nominee. Remember Me, which ended up winning the Oscar from Coco. Deservedly. And then uh, the Globes went with um, the Nick Jonas song Home from Ferdinand. Remember oh. Ferdinand? Remember when I had <laughs> to watch... Golden Globe winner Nick. Remember Jonas. when I had to track down the publicist for Ferdinand to send me a screener disc because I needed to watch it for my Oscar rankings because it was an Oscar nominee? Um and then uh, the most unwell nomination, which was the star from the film The Star, uh, oh, written yeah. by Mariah Carey and Mark Shaman. So a uh, long history of uh, Christian cinema getting Oscar nominations for original yeah. song. And then Oscar went for um, Call Me by Your Name, um, and what was the fifth? I genuinely don't even remember. But anyway. Um, Yes, Justice for Sarah Bareilles. I'm just going to say it. Justice for Sarah Bareilles. That's all. I think those are all. I mentioned Sarah Silverman. I mentioned Brie Larson. I mentioned Bad Boys 2. I think we're we're on it. Hot nepotism, honey. Anyone want to talk about hot nepotism? Oh, yeah. Talk about Lewis Pullman. I didn't even realize Uh, that was uh, was who that was. Playing Bobby Riggs' son. It's also just like the year of him... uh, being like that's Bill Pullman's son. Uh, Why? What else is he? Also, uh, bad times at the El Royale, right? Oh, he was the little bellboy in Bad Times at yeah. the El Royale. That was such a disappointing movie. I wanted I that movie that to movie. be so much people fun. People loved that movie. No, did they? There were people that loved that horrible movie. I feel like the dominant uh, emotion I saw about that movie was like meh, and that was sort of like, I thought it was such a disappointment. I yeah, wanted it to, it, it, like, it presented as, like, the trailer got me so hopeful. This is why I can't trust this, um, what's this Michelle Yeoh, Carla Gugino, the guns, the ladies with guns movie, um, that looks like. You can't like, trust that movie because it's going to Netflix. That's why you can't trust well, that movie. Well, no, I, because I'm not weird about Netflix in that same way. Um, I, what is it called? What the fuck is it called? Gunpowder Kitchen? What is it? Um, Gunpowder Milkshake. Yeah. Um. I just can't, I can no longer trust that a trailer where it's just like, I like women, cool. you know, actresses being badasses. I'm just like, I can't trust it anymore. I feel like Sucker Punch fooled me. I feel like The Kitchen fooled me. And um, something, Bad Times at the El Royale doesn't quite sell it the exact same way, but Bad Times at the El Royale really sells you on a... Um, sort of murder mystery who done it at a at an isolated Genre hotel. Experience. Yeah, and I really wanted it, and it didn't deliver. Even though Cynthia Erivo sings like a goddamn angel in that movie. Um, that movie is very lucky that she is in it. Otherwise, yes. it would be useless, disaster. Yeah, and again, any movie that wastes Dakota Johnson is my enemy. Is what I will say. Yes, don't do it. Don't do that. What What else was I just thinking of? that wastes Dakota Johnson. Oh, we were talking about uh, Wounds, that Army Hammer horror movie Wounds <laughs> that wastes Dakota Johnson. Don't do it, people! She's incredibly exciting. Anyway. Stop it. Yeah. Should we move on to the IMDb game? Yeah, let's do it. Alright, explain to listeners what the IMDb game is. Hey listeners, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game. In this game, we challenge each other with an actor or actress, and we try to guess what the top four titles are that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television, or perhaps 
uh, a voice-only performance or perhaps a non-acting credit if, you know, they're the director or the producer, but they're not in it. We mentioned that up front. Uh, then, after two wrong guesses, should those wrong guesses emerge, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And then if we still have to guess, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints, which is fun. Which is fun. Yeah. Uh, what uh, do you have to serve up for me? Ha-ha. So we mentioned Ruby Sparks, the sort of middle child of the Jonathan Dayton, Valerie Ferris film universe. That film is a really, really interesting cast. We mentioned Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan, Annette Benning, Antonio Banderas. Chris Messina's in that movie. Uh, Steve Coogan's in that movie. Elliot Gould is in that movie. Uh, also in that movie, though... Um, oh, also in that movie is Wallace Langham, who is uh, Alan Cummings' uh, assistant costumer in uh, Battle of the Sexes, which I uh, which I thought was cool. Anyway, um, the person from the Ruby Sparks cast who I'm going to give you, though, uh, to do an IMDb game for, is one Ms. Alia Shawkat. Ah, yes. how much television? One television. Search Party. Wrong. Okay... Oh, Arrested Development. Arrested Development, yes. Um, hmm. This is going to be really hard. Because I think of her mostly from TV. Oh, um. uh, I mean, she's in First Cow, but she doesn't even speak. I know. (laughs) So it's not going to be that. Um... Damn, this is going to be hard. I'm like kind of at a loss. Is Ruby Sparks in there? No, unfortunately. That's two strikes. All right, so now you're going to get the years. Your years are 2009, 2013, and 2018. I will say this is a hard one. So I will give you, uh, you know, you are already uh, a superstar for even attempting that's okay. I've given you some very difficult. Yeah, you have. Semi-recent. Yeah. Oh, I don't feel bad about this choice. I'm just saying. Oh, okay. You maybe you should. No, Sh- shan't. I shan't. Okay. Um, 2018 and what? 2009, 2013, 2018. Okay. So 09. Hmm. What would have been going on for her around 09 that I can at least place her? Because that's earlier. Oh, wait. Is one of them Green Room? No, although it should be. Because that's a good movie and she's good in it. People either really like that movie or really hate it. Like I, know. I feel like it was one of the most uncomfortable viewing experiences I ever had because I was so tense the entire time. I saw it at TIFF Midnight Madness, like at midnight with uh, oh boy. a friend, Nick Davis. And Nick did not care for oh, it. Nick. And I think Nick's sort of not caring for it, like by osmosis, kind of like uh, uh, transferred to Rogue me. So I was, I was pretty mixed on it the first time I saw it. And then I watched it again this past... Halloween season, as I try and watch uh, 31 horror movies in 31 days every October. Um, and I liked it a lot more. I was really, really, really into it. So, uh, But yeah, no, not that one. Uh, Nick, if you're listening, we miss you. We love you. We miss you. We love you, um, Nick. Yeah, that was 2015, Green Room. Um, or maybe even 2016 by the time it came out. But anyway. 
Okay, so that's not one of them. Ruby Sparks isn't one of them. Do you want some hints? Yes. <laughs> okay, the 2009 movie we both love, I'm fairly certain. Directed okay. by somebody who we talked about, uh, I believe, two episodes ago? Um, uh, somebody who, lovely? I think it was in that episode. Um, somebody who we both wish would direct more. I think it was, if not their only directorial effort, one of like maybe two. Um. Oh my God! It's Whip It. Yeah. We about Spielberg saying that Drew Barrymore needs to direct more, and yes. he loves Whip It. Yes, it is Whip It. She plays Elliot Page's best friend uh, in Whip It, and she's great. And everybody in that movie is great, and it rules. And uh, more people should see it. It's great. All right. So that's your 2009. Your 2018 movie uh, is very, very, very indie. She's she's the lead in it. She's one of, I think, a pair of leads in it. I have not seen it, but I remember it being sort of um, notoriously explicit. Oh. In certain ways. And again, I haven't seen it, so maybe not. Like sexy stuffs? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Uh, written and directed by a uh, very notable sort of... Um, indie director who tends to do these kind of uh um i'm trying to think not exactly like provocations but like um directs some really really interesting indie stuff including um certain scripts by a very very uh talented screenwriter who sometimes directs his own stuff but usually um, just sort of writes it and has a new television series coming out very soon that I'm very excited about. Someone who sometimes directs but writes a lot for this director has a TV show coming out. Yeah. I don't know if what I've talked TV to you about this TV show, out. but I'm really, really excited for it. I've watched some screeners for it, and it's... Am I excited for this TV show? You should be. Um, this screenwriter has... Uh, written some really he had a year recently where he wrote two movies that we both really liked in the same year um oh i know it's mike white um because the white lotus is coming out i am very excited for the white lotus yes you should be um so who, it's not so mike who's white directed a bunch of mike white movies miguel arteta yes miguel arteta directed this yes don't think that's going to help me get okay. what this is. Yeah. Have I seen this? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. Because um, I'm trying to think of what Miguel Arteta's most recent things are, and I can't remember. It might be his most recent movie. Hold on. Um, this played, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in April of Oh, so it's a Tribeca movie. Yeah. But, like, as a Tribeca movie, like, is, like, pretty well known for a Tribeca movie. Um, okay. There is an animal in the title, and also a food stuff. Animal and food, and it sounds dirty. It just sounds filthy. Um. Oh, you know what, Mike uh, Miguel Arteta's most recent film is that he directed? 
Uh, are your beloved, maybe a little bit more than me, Like a Boss? <gasps> like a Boss is fun. <laughs> like a Boss is not entirely successful in what it is, but uh, Salma is on fucking one in that movie. So, She's so funny. Okay, this film title, I'm just going to really break it down like uh, like we're playing Celebrity. Um, waterfowl plus um, a dairy item. Waterfowl. Plus dairy item. Seagull. Duck. Uh-huh. Uh, a duck? Uh-huh. Okay. Dairy item. Milk. No. Cheese. No. You're circling the you're circling the parking lot though. Butter? Yeah. Have you not heard of duck butter? I don't think I have. Oh, okay. Um I've not Why seen it. I have heard of duck butter. Tell me. I feel it. like it was just a little like it was a little indie uh uh flare up. I don't know. It could be it's the type be of good. thing that I had heard of, and because I didn't see it, it's evaporated from my brain. Yeah. I should check out Duck Butter. Alia Shawkat, Laya Costa. Um, it's supposed to be good. Okay. All right. Now, your 2013 movie stars a sort of indie darling actress who got famous for a supporting role on a sitcom, but then was in a bunch of indie stuff, and... Um, apparently this movie should be known. Like, this is a movie that, like, you should know just because, like, this is a movie that, um, I don't know, apparently is well known, uh, 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 according to you. And, um... According to me? Yeah. And, like, say if somebody tried to guess this movie at a previous uh, IMDb game and struggled with it, um... Oh my god. It spoke ill of no, them. And, no, 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 And Is the indie actress um, Aubrey Plaza? Maybe. Maybe it is. Is it the to-do list? Yeah, I can't believe you didn't get the to-do list, Chris. It's an incredibly well-known movie. <laughs> I never said it was incredibly well-known. You, you, you should have been expected to get this movie uh, very easily. to exaggerate. Very easily. And I think it speaks ill of you that you didn't, is, is, is all I'm going to say. I never said that you should have gotten it easily. I can't believe this is the first time I've ever gotten to do a revenge IMDb game. <laughs> this is very fun for me. This is very fun. I am positive you have done revenge IMDb games before. Uh, listeners, I famously struggled to come up with the film to do the to-do list because I had never heard of it when I did the Aubrey and Plaza game. And several episodes later, Joe exaggerates on how obvious I thought that it was. I would never. I chose it because it wasn't obvious. I would never exaggerate ever. Anyway, um... I might go see Duck Butter. We have the hell. Homosexual persuasion would never exist. <laughs> yeah, we definitely. Uh, yeah, we 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 observe the world as it is. Anyway, my favorite brand of poppers is hyperbole. <laughs> All right, what do you have for me? All right, so I went a little more basic, probably um, an easier one to guess. I went into this year's Oscar race, perhaps the person that Steve Carell lost the SAG Award to, Mr. Sam Rockwell. Oh, fascinating. Well, I imagine that his Oscar Oscar win for Three Billboards is there. Yes. I don't know why I'm so sure that Moon is one of them, but I'm going to guess Moon. Moon is one of them. Okay. Moon has a cult following. And it also, Plus, and he's like, a lead, he's like, it's like his movie, and... Every, like, uh, production still from the movie is going to have at least one of him in it. Yeah. 
So now it becomes because Sam Rockwell is a, a supporting actor's supporting actor. Like he is very, very rarely a lead in things. So I'm. It's a, it's now a question of is it going to be early supporting stuff or later supporting stuff? I'm going to. I'm going to put a pin in Vice for the moment because I want to think. I want to think better of uh, IMDb that they wouldn't have Vice there. I'm going to guess Galaxy Quest. No. Okay. I also don't think Matchstick Men is well remembered and is not well is uh, is remembered enough these I days. I see Matchstick Men. It's fun. I really enjoyed Matchstick Men, as I recall. Okay. Um, is Seven Psychopaths one of them? Yes. Ooh. Okay. Seven Psychopaths shows up for a it does. lot of people. That's why I guessed it. Yes. All right. One more Sammy Rockwell. I'm just gonna guess Vice. No. Okay. Your year is 2002. <laughs> 2000, which is the year? Is it Matchstick Men? No. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 2002, so it's too late for Charlie's Angels. Um, Sammy Rockwell. Oh, is it Confessions of a Dangerous Mind? It is confession. He's of a dangerous so good mind. in that movie. He's really, really good in that movie. The first George. That Clooney was like movie. the first time that he was the star. You know what? Yeah. On the poster, yeah. he's the and credit for the movie. That is tip. Like that is both that wild is and also unsurprising because that movie was sold uh, yeah, as unsurprising. It was sold on uh, George Clooney being the first George Clooney directed movie. And it was also weirdly sold on like, it's like a listy cameos. Like the fact that like Julia Roberts is in that movie briefly. And like, and like Sam Rockwell was very much at the bottom of the list of things that they sold that movie on, which is, they could also say that they're pulling, uh, alphabetical, uh, ranking in the billing on this poster because who is billed first but Drew Barrymore. So that is what Easy A does and that is why Emma Stone is the and credit in Easy A. That's I wa- I almost wonder if I wonder if there's enough movies to make like a listicle about that. Movies where the lead Trivia is round. um is the and credit cuz now we've got two so one more makes it a trend. Um not from this poster but from another poster in his known for I want to have this conversation with you so bad, but I would have to spoil a movie that is vaguely... I, I don't know if I spoiled this for you already. What movie? But like, what movie? Black Widow. Oh, yeah, don't tell me. I want to I wanna see, I wanna see okay. it. No, you've I already you've you already teased to... about some like some very random cameo that like I'm already I already you feel like I know too much. You are going to text me that performer's name. I just know it, and I'm going to know. Oh, he just saw Black Widow. I know, but I don't. I I'm already sad that I know to to look for it. I don't know. I don't want to know anything more. I'm only a week away. Okay, I will see it. I don't think I I, I can't prepare you for it. <laughs> it is unpreparable. No, it's not spoiled for you. All right, it's, it's psycho. All right. Um, all right. Well, then I guess I have done the Sam Rockwell IMDb game. Happy for me. Good for me. Thank God for me. <laughs> all right. I think that is our episode. Guys, if you want more of This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out our Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, please tell our listeners where to find more of you. Sure. How about Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd uh, spelled that same way. 
I am also on Twitter. I kind of want to leave Twitter. Um, uh, but I'm also <laughs> Don't on Letterboxd uh, at Chris V. File. Uh, that's F E I L. You can find me both of those places. Oh, and we would also like to thank <laughs> Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, even though it's terrible now, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with visibility on the terrible Apple Podcasts. So please tell us that in 30 years, gay people can get married and everyone will listen to our show. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye. Bye.